Well, how many of you grew up in Lubbock or have been here for like 20 years? Let's say 20 years. Okay. So some hands, man, nine o'clock, almost everyone in the room was from Lubbock and had been here almost their whole lives. At 10:15, almost no one. And then you guys are like 50-50. So it's kind of it's kind of kind of interesting. I grew up here. Um, I've been here since I was about four. Uh, and so I've been here for quite a while. And at uh, South Plains Mall, okay, that, that was the, the place. You used to like hang out, your parents would drop you off. You know, if you were cool, you, you could hang out there and, and uh, be with your friends, you know, and get in trouble and do stuff like that. Uh, when I went with my parents though, when we went with our family, with my brothers, they, they used to have these big planters in the middle of the mall, these fountains, and, and maybe they were in your mall too, but they had these giant like walls that, you know, it, they were made for kids to climb up on so that you could walk around the, the top of them, right? And so that's what we would do. And our mom would tell us, don't do that. You keep doing that. You're going to trip and fall and get hurt. And so what would we do? We would keep walking on them. We, we, we would run on them, in fact, and act like, you know, they're, they're balance beams or wires that you're walking on because that's how narrow they were. Well, sure enough, the day came because if you play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned where I tripped and fell, and you can see, maybe you can see it on the screen up there, you can see this scar right here, that straight line, that's from where I fell, busted my head open, bleeding everywhere, didn't listen to my mom, I kept playing on that little tiny ledge, kept walking on it, and eventually I fell. You know, that's what happens with sin. That's what happens. Like when you keep walking on the slippery slope of sin, you're going to fall, you're going to get hurt. When you continually live trying to see how close you can get to the line without it being sin, you're going to get hurt. We are finishing a series today called Creed. And in this series, we've been talking about the Christian basics that every Christian should know. It doesn't mean you do know them, but it does mean you need to know them. You should know them. And so last summer, we talked about the doctrine of the word of God. Uh, this summer, we're taking another doctrine, which is a Christian belief, and we're breaking it down because as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. And so a doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us about a particular topic. And so last summer, when we talked about the word of God, we're, taught, we're saying, what does the word of God, the Bible, all of the Bible teach us about the Bible, about the word of God? And we're doing that same thing this summer. We'll do it again next summer, where we'll take a different point of what we call systematic theology, and we will break it down so that we can understand it. Now, in this series, we are loving the Lord our God with all of our mind. We're learning, okay? And we need to know and learn God's truth. We need to know these things because Paul says in Ephesians 4 that it's in the knowledge of God, it's in the knowledge of God's word. And as we mature in our faith and in God's word, that we'll be firmly planted with a secure, firm foundation. So we'll be able to take our stand against the storms of life. Paul says it's in that firm foundation being firmly planted in God's word and God's truth that will allow you to spot false teaching because it's out there. It will give you the filter or the lens by which to judge every book and every pastor that ever opens their mouth. And so you need to know God's word because there's a lot of Christian books out there for sale in Christian bookstores that are filled with false teaching. There's a lot of people like me with microphones on TV and YouTube and everything like that that continue to, I've been shocked by it even in the last week, 
by someone that all of us probably have listened to and follow, just, just saying heretical things. And so you need to know God's word so that you can be firmly planted to spot the lie from what's true. And so that's what a series like this is designed to do. It's to give us the unshakable truth in God's word as we live in shaky times. When you're living in a shaky time, you need unshakable truth to hold on to. And so that's the, the point of this series. Now, creed is filled, a creed is filled with Christian doctrine, usually made up of many doctrinal statements. And so maybe you've heard of things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, another version of a creed would be like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Th these are things that have been put together to help you remember God's word, God's truth. And we've said a creed is like a fat guy in a little coat. Forgive the expression. If you've seen Tommy Boy, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen Tommy Boy, don't go watch Tommy Boy. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that's where that phrase comes from. That's what a creed is. It's a lot of truth jam-packed into a little tight little space, all right, to help you remember it. So before we get started, three assumptions Three assumptions that I have about you if you're a follower of Jesus and that you should have about me as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. But, but we've got to establish this so we have kind of have a common ground from which to work on or at least so that you understand where I'm coming from, even if you disagree. So number one, first assumption is this that we've said in this series. The God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and he has spoken. He has revealed himself, his purposes and his ways in the Bible. If God had not revealed himself, we would be left to guess about who he is, what he's like, and what happens after you die. And so every other religion on the face of the planet that man has ever come up with is man's best guess. But we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. God has disclosed himself. He's revealed himself in the Bible. And so if we want to know who God is, what he's like, what happens after we die, how did we get here, we turn to the Bible. God exists and he has revealed himself and he wants us to know him. That's the purpose of his revelation of himself. He wants us to know him and be in relationship with him. So that's the first assumption. Second assumption is this. That means the Bible is true and it is our only source, our only standard of truth. The only source of truth in this life, the absolute truth, is found in the scripture because it is the revelation from God himself. And so we talked about last summer in our creed series, the doctrine of the word of God. And we covered some of this, like the history of the Bible. How did it come into being? Uh, the, the authority of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible and what it does in our lives. We talked about that last summer in creed. This summer we're addressing the following doctrine. And this is the next assumption. It's the creed statement for this year. It's this, disobeying God's word is disobeying God himself. God exists He's revealed himself in the Bible. That's the first assumption. The second assumption is this. That means if we have the word of God, it's our only absolute standard of truth and we judge everything else through the lens of the scripture. But then third, the third assumption just logically follows is that if in the Bible we have the word of God, to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself. To disbelieve God's word is to disbelieve God himself. And so in this series, here's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the doctrine of sin. And so if you have our app, now's a great time. Break that out, fill in the blanks as we go. The verses will be there for you here in just a second. There's also some text boxes that we've added on there now where you can take your own notes and then email all of that to yourself after we're done. We're talking about in this series, the doctrine 
of sin. And so as followers of Jesus, we should firmly resolve in our minds to abandon his faults or to confess his sin, any idea, attitude, or action which is found to be clearly contradicted by the teaching of Scripture. If to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself, then as Christians who have the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about that here in a second, we should firmly resolve in our minds to abandon his faults or to confess his sin, any idea, attitude, or action which is found to be clearly contradicted by the teaching of Scripture. So let's turn there now. Genesis chapter 4 is where we've been in this series. We're going back there to finish this up. If you missed week 1, the definition of sin, or week 2, the consequences of sin, you can catch up on our app or on our podcast. But today we're going to finish up this series, Genesis chapter 4. Let me set this up for you, tell you kind of where we're at in case you haven't been here. This is the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's kids. They are brothers. Cain's the older brother. Abel's the younger brother. Abel brings a sacrifice to God as a worship to God. And so Cain, not to be upstaged by his younger brother, and brothers always bring out the best in us, right? They always make us do and say the best of things. And so same thing happens here. Cain, not to be upstaged by his little brother, decides he's going to bring a sacrifice to God as well. Well, for reasons we talked about in week one, God rejects the sacrifice that Cain offers. He accepts the, uh, the offering, the sacrifice that Abel offers, and Cain gets upset about this. And so now God is speaking to Cain here in Genesis chapter four, verse seven. Here we go. God says this. You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door and it's eager to control you. And we talked about this in week one, that this is in reference, the Hebrew idea here of sin crouching out the door, ready to control you, is this image, it's this picture of this wild, ravenous, bloodthirsty beast on the other side of this door that's ready, it's crouching and it's ready to pounce. It's ready to pounce and destroy you, take you out. Eat you, literally. That's the, that's the idea that's being promoted, that's being talked about. This is the picture of sin, that it's this ambush that's waiting to happen. It's hidden, and so you don't see it. It may look good at first, but sin never delivers on its promise. It's just an ambush. It's a trap that's waiting to be sprung. And so God says, there's, a, there's like a beast on the other side of the door, Cain, and it wants to take you out. But you must subdue it, and be its master. Sin wants to control you. It wants to be your master. But Cain, I'm telling you, you need to subdue sin. Don't let sin subdue you. You subdue sin and be its master. Well, Cain doesn't. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. Cain doesn't. What does he end up doing? He lures his brother. He tricks his brother to coming out into a field and he kills him. Think about this for just a second. What God said would happen to Cain, Cain is now doing to someone else. And that's the power of sin. It wants to master you. It wants to take over. It wants to control you. God says sin is waiting on the other side of the door. It's an ambush that's, that's ready to take you out, Cain. Sin takes him out and then turns him into his puppet. And what does Cain turn around and do? He sets a trap for his brother, an ambush. And he takes him out into this field where he thinks no one is watching and he kills his brother. But God sees, God sees everything that we do, even the things that we think 
When no one is watching, when we're all by ourselves, God says, nope, I see that too. I see your sin, Cain. And so God says, Cain, you must subdue sin and be its master. So again, week one, we talked about the definition of sin. What is sin? What does it do? Week two, we talked about the consequences of sin. Here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the subduing of sin. How do we subdue sin? How do we master the sin? How do we overcome the sin that's in our life and that is awaiting us? God would tell his people all throughout the Old Covenant that we find in the Old Testament, the people of God, the nation of Israel. He would say over and over and over again, I've put before you two paths, life and death. Choose life that you might live. But if you choose to sin and to turn from me, then death awaits. That's the curse of sin. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, to Adam and Eve, God said, if you eat from the knowledge of good tree of good and evil, then, then you will die. It's the curse of sin. And God says, if you, you choose that path, the narrow, the broad road that leads to destruction, you're going to die. But, but if you'll live on my narrow path and follow me, then you will live. And so God would say to the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, choose life that you might live. We come to the new covenant and Paul says things like in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. All who belong to the Lord, Paul says, must turn away from evil. That's the foundation stone of God's truth. That is, if you belong to the Lord, then you must turn away from evil. Paul would say in Romans chapter three, if you continue to live in your sin, taking advantage of the grace of God, oh, Jesus died for me, my sin's okay, my sin's forgiven. If you keep acting like that and you keep living like that, you keep living in sin, Paul says, then your condemnation is deserved, Paul would say. What, what does that mean? Well, condemnation is a word that's reserved for this legal guilt before God that incurs the wrath of God for your sin, where you pay the, the fine that you owe for breaking God's law. That's condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you because you stand condemned already before God. You're guilty before God. You're going to incur the wrath of God for breaking God's law. And so Paul says, if you live and continue to live in sin, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you're just saying, well, God's going to forgive me. Uh, Jesus died for me. He's going to forgive you know, And you just keep living like that. Paul says, your condemnation is deserved. In other words, here's what Paul's saying to you. You're a liar. You can claim to be something all day long, but you're not. That doesn't make it true. If you continue to live in sin, then you're not a, you're not, you don't belong to God. You're not a child of God. You can claim that, that doesn't make it true. Paul says, followers of Jesus, children of God, don't continue to live in sin. They may screw up, they may fall, they may stumble, but they're going to be broken over their sin, they're going to turn from their sin, and they're going to run from sin. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 6, we've died to sin. 
So how can we live in it any longer? Jesus would say it like this, even to the woman that was caught in adultery, the, the story that we tell all the time about the woman who's caught in adultery and Jesus tells everybody that's ready to stone her, hey, he who's without sin cast the first stone and they all lay their stones down, they all go away. And it's this amazing story of the love and mercy and grace of, of Jesus. And that is absolutely true. But at the end of that story, Jesus says something to the woman that might shock you. He says this, but go and sin no more. Like leave your life of sin. Yes, there is mercy. Yes, there is grace, but leave your life of sin, Jesus would say. So how do we do that? Cain couldn't do it, clearly. So, so how can we do it? Where does this power for subduing sin come from? If Cain didn't have the power to do it, how can you and I? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, we subdue sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. We subdue sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians chapter three, if you can't do and continue to do everything written in this book, then you are cursed. The curse of sin is death. If you can't perfectly do everything that's written in this book, from birth to death, then you're cursed. And the curse of sin is death. Here's, here's the implication. We, we, we can't do it. We, we cannot do this. We cannot do better and try harder and, 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 and perform and do everything that's written in this book. In fact, Paul would say that the purpose of the law that was given to the nation of Israel was to stop every mouth so that every person would be silent before God and would not boast about anything they've ever done. Because they would know, I've broken your law, I can't stand up before you and boast about anything that I've done. So Paul says the purpose of the law was to silence every mouth. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the, that, that the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, would, would use God's law as a means, of which, a means by which to establish their own righteous standing before God. But Paul would say, but that's not God's way. That wasn't the purpose of the law, to keep it and then to establish your own righteous standing before God. No, the purpose of the law was to show you that you couldn't do it. You can't do it. This is the holiness of God. This is the standard of God. And so by giving us God's law, the physical form of his holiness, this manifestation of his holiness, we see how far, how fall, far rather, we desperately fall from his standard. We can't do it. And so God says in Jeremiah chapter one, Ezekiel chapter 36, so I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. You can't keep my code. You can't keep my law. You can't do it. So I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. And God says in this new covenant, I'm gonna take your heart of stone out and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh that's tender to me, that's sensitive to me. I'm gonna place my spirit inside of you and I'm gonna move you from the inside out to worship me and obey me. And I'm gonna write my law on this new heart I'm going to give you. In other words, you're gonna to want to obey me from the inside out. I'm gonna change you from the inside out by taking out your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh, putting my spirit inside of you and writing my laws on your hearts. And this is the new covenant. 
God places his spirit within us. He changes us from the inside out. And so Paul would write in, in, in Romans chapter seven, so we no longer serve God in the old way of the code, this outward code, this external pressure, this checklist that we're supposed to check off and live up to in order to somehow be right with God. Paul says, so we don't, we don't serve God like that in the old way of the code. We serve God in the new way of the spirit, Paul says. And the new way of the spirit is God changing us from the inside out through the power of his Holy Spirit, changing our hearts, giving us a hatred for sin and a love for holiness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, moving you towards holiness and away from sin, giving you a hatred and a brokenness over your sin and a love for holiness. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so Paul says in Romans chapter eight, if the spirit lives in you and it lives in the life of every child of God, then Paul says, then it's by the spirit that we put to death the desires of the flesh. That's how we turn from sin. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter six, Paul says it like this. If you live by the spirit and you keep in step with the spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. So we keep in step with the Spirit. We're living in the Spirit. We're living by the Spirit of God. We can't do it, but He can do it for us and in us and through us. And so watch this. We subdue sin from a place of dependence. We subdue sin from a place of dependence on the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us and changing our hearts from the inside out, giving us a passion for holiness and a hatred for sin. Secondly, we subdue sin with the power of a circle, with the power of a circle. When God shows up in Genesis chapter four, confronting Cain for his sin, God asks Cain, hey, where's your brother? Where's Abel? And Cain says, you might remember, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not his guardian. I'm not responsible for him. In his sin, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The implication here is, yes, Cain, you are. God's asking it. So clearly, he's asking you, where, where, where's your brother? Clearly, you are his keeper. You are his guardian. You are responsible for him, and he's responsible for you. You're supposed to watch after each other. Yes, you are responsible for him, but you killed him. You killed him, Cain. In your sin, you killed him, and you actually think you don't need him. He doesn't need you, and you're not responsible for him. You see, when you're born, you're born into a physical family and you have a mom and dad and probably some brothers and sisters. When you're born again through your faith in Jesus, you get a new spiritual family. You're born again into a spiritual family. You've got a heavenly father and you've got brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got a spiritual family. And much like Cain, God expected of Cain, you're responsible for them we're responsible for you. We are supposed to guard each other and keep each other, if you want to use the words of Cain. We have a spiritual family. We aren't designed to do the Christian life on our own. Years ago, when I was in 
San Francisco. My wife and I were there. We went up north uh, to, to take a hike on this trail, this tour into, uh, I think it's called Muir Woods, and there's all these redwood trees, and, and, and they're huge. They're gigantic. Some redwoods will, will grow so big that they've cut out holes in them, and you can literally like drive a car through them. That's how big they are. They'll grow to 100, 200 feet. I mean, gigantic trees, the likes of which we've never seen in West, West Texas, right? These are huge. And you can see them up in the air, 100, 200 feet up in the air, and they'll be swaying. You can see them from the wind. You might wonder, how would a, how would a tree that tall stand the test of time and stand up to that kind of wind? It must mean they have roots that go down way deep into the ground that give them that solid foundation to grow that tall and to withstand the wind. But if you thought that, like I did, you'd be wrong. Their roots actually only go down a couple of feet. Isn't that crazy? But all redwoods grow in what's called a family circle. And their roots don't go down deep. They actually stay very shallow but they begin to get woven together and they begin to interlock together. And so the power of a redwood, the reason why it can grow so tall and it can stand the test of the storm is because their roots grow together. They begin to intermingle and they keep each other up. They keep each other strong. They are interdependent. A redwood doesn't grow alone. It grows in what they call a family circle. And God designed the Christian life to be done the exact same way. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image. It's the very first reference we have to the idea of the Trinity, the Godhead. God existing in three persons, but yet one God. And God says, we're, we, us, we're going to make man in our image. In other words, God exists himself in community, and he makes us in his image, in his likeness which means we are to exist in community. In Genesis chapter two, in Adam's alone, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. Why? Because we're designed to do this life in community, in a family circle. And as a follower of Jesus, your family circle is the family of God. It's the people of God. You've got brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if you've been reading with us in our daily devotionals, then you read in the last week, where Paul said this, the mouth can't say to the body, I don't need you. And the body can't say to the mouth, I don't need you. We need each other. I need you, you need me, you need each other. And so we don't ever say as Christians, well, I love Jesus, but I'm good on my own. I don't, I don't need anybody else. I don't need the church. No, 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 we say that in sin. That is a sinful thought. It's an immature lifestyle. You can't grow spiritually. You can't fight sin and pursue the mission of God without your family circle. We need each other. And so we subdue sin with the power and from a place of dependence on the Holy Spirit. But watch this. We also subdue sin from a place of interdependence. Dependence on the Holy Spirit, interdependence between each other, never independent. From a place of dependence, from a place of interdependence, but never from a place of independence. We all need a we to circle around me. 
And so when I'm down, we circles around me and lifts me up. We all need a we to circle around me. We need a we to circle around me when I'm struggling in sin, where James says, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I need a we to circle around me so that I can be healed, so that I can confess my sin and we can pray together so that we might be healed, James says. So we subdue sin from a place of interdependence. Third, we subdue sin from a place of distance or from with the power of distance. We subdue sin with the power of distance. When God says, Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching out the door. It wants to devour you. It wants to crush you. It wants to master you. It wants to control you. Again, the picture is of a wild beast that's crouching and ready to pounce and take you out. So the picture here, the idea here that, that God's painting is that if you want to subdue sin, then you've got to stay away from it. You don't toy with it. You don't flirt with it. You're not seeing how close I can get to the line. And is this sin or is this not? How close can I get to the line and it still not be sin? When, would, if I cross this line, is it sin? And I come back, it's not sin. That's normally the game that we play. But God is saying here to Cain, listen, no, sin wants to devour you. It wants to control you and, and be your master. So you've got to stay away from it. You gotta put some distance between you and the crouching beast that's ready to take you out and ambush you. So it's not how close can I get to the line, I need to run from the line. Several years ago, I was in Africa and we went on this safari and uh, we're driving in this Jeep all over the place, seeing all these cool animals and stuff. And we come to this area where there's all these carcasses everywhere. And we're like, what, what is this? Well, we're, we're in the, the lion zone. Oh, great. That sounds, that sounds awesome, you know? And, and so we're, we're driving down this road. You see these carcasses everywhere because it's still, kind of, it's still the wild. I mean, these lions are still eating animals for their food. And so they're not caged. This isn't a zoo. And so we're, we're driving down this road. We're in this Jeep. It's like an armored Jeep, you know, with a top. You can stand out of the top of it, but there's still a top to it because these lions are still dangerous. They're wild. And so we're coming down this road and in the distance, we can see a lion coming towards us. And everything in you is like, turn the Jeep around, get out of here, let's get out of here. Like, if you're thinking, like me, I'm, all I can think of is this old movie called The Ghost in the Darkness and these, these ravenous lions like jump on top of buildings and on cars and ripping people out like dinosaurs or something and killing people. And I'm just thinking this, this lion's gonna jump on this truck and rip us out of there and eat. So everything inside of you is like, don't let it get closer. They're like, okay, let's stop so we can see them. Stop, what, no, get us out of here. I mean, that's everything you're naturally thinking when you see a lion just walking towards you, right? Is get me out of here. So we, we, we stay there and the lion comes and it comes right beside the Jeep. And I'm, I'm in this Jeep and I'm leaning over the, the top of it and it walks right below us. That lion got so close I could have spanked his butt. That's how close that lion was to us. But did I do that? No, I was close enough. I didn't wanna get any closer. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to flirt with the lion or see how much closer I could get to the lion. No, that thing could take me out. It could devour me, literally devour me. And so I'm not going to toy with it. I'm not going to play with it. I'm not going to see how close I can get to the lion. No, we've got to run from the line. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you gotta get extreme. Don't play with it. 
Don't toy with it. You need to get extreme. You've got to separate yourself. You've got to put some distance between you and the line. We're not trying to see how close we can get to the line. We're running from the line. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Speaking here in terms of sexual immorality, run from anything that stimulates sexual lust for anything or anyone other than your spouse. You're to run from it, not toy with it, not flirt with it. When you're growing up, you're in high school, college, you're dating. I mean, I think if you're honest, you're probably like me. It's like, okay, well, what all can we do and it not be sin? Because some of this, it's actually kind of fun, you know, for a little bit. And it, 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 it is kind of fun. And so you're always trying to say, well, how close can I get to this line? How much can we do? Can we do this? Could we do that? Is this sin? Is that not sin? And if you're like me, you kind of toy with that and you're, you're playing with that. And if you're not careful, you realize that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. It's going to take you places you don't want to go. It's going to leave you with all kinds of pain and regret. Lots of times people today, you, you know, again, you want to see how close you can get to the line without crossing it. People, you know, whether it's sleeping together, having kids together, living together and not being married. Yeah, God's word says uh, don't dishonor the marriage bed, but I'm going to see how close can we get to the line and not cross it. We've got to run from the line. We don't try to see how close we can get to it. We're not toying with it. We're not flirting with it. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph ran from temptation. Joseph sold into slavery. He's working for this guy. He's progressing. He's kind of climbing the ladder. He's getting, he's more and more successful. He's been working outside and getting a tan. He's getting nice and strong. This dude's wife starts noticing. She's like, come here, Joseph, let's talk, let's chat. And Joseph's like, no, no, you're nothing but trouble. She keeps luring him, she keeps seducing him. At one point, she grabs onto him. Joseph runs, literally, the scripture says he runs and he never stops running. He runs right away from that place. He had to get away. He wasn't seeing how close he could get to the line and how much he could stand before he would be overcome. He ran from sin. He ran from the idea of sin. He ran from the temptation. He ran from the place where he might be tempted to sin. He ran from the line. He wasn't trying to see how close he could get with it. The day before Easter this year, we had some friends that invited us out to their place to ride four-wheelers and motorcycles and things like that. And so we're out there and Everybody's getting on four-wheelers and stuff. Well, I grew up riding dirt bikes, and so, you know, I want to ride a dirt bike. Well, my wife's kind of like, uh, you think that's smart? You think that's a good idea? And uh, why don't you, you should probably just ride a four-wheeler. I mean, four-wheeler with, with us, it's a lot safer. My kids are even like, Dad, we think, you know, you're old. You should be riding a four-wheeler. You shouldn't be riding. And in my, in my pride, I'm kind of like, I grew up riding dirt bikes, guys. I don't know if you know this or not. I, I'm like a, a dirt bike professional. Kind of, I'm into motocross, you know? And they're all kind of like, what? I mean, that was 20 years ago, dude. And, and so I'm kind of thinking, no, I, I got this. I can handle this. Even my friend Kobe's, this is the house, right? He's like, hey, bud, uh, that clutch on that one's pretty tricky. And so is the throttle. It's pretty strong. Like it's, it's kind of souped up. Uh, motorcycle. And I'm like, I got this. Okay. I'm fine. 
So I get on it, and sure enough, the, the throttle is a little tricky, and the, uh, the, the, the clutch is a little tricky. It kind of sticks, and, and so we're riding this motorcycle. We get to this, to this straightaway on this dirt road, and everybody's kind of taking off and going, and I'm going to do the same thing. I think this bike's in second gear. It's in first gear. I throw the throttle. Boom! I ride this wheelie for about two seconds. The pleasures of sin, the Bible says, are very short-lived, Okay. Two seconds into that wheelie, boom, I'm down. The motorcycle goes flying. I get up. My pants are ripped from my thigh down to my shin. My knee is bleeding and bloody. It's hurting. It's the day before Easter. I'm thinking, this is, you know, it's a Super Bowl for pastors. And I'm like, I'm injured. What am I going to do? You know, I'm freaking out. This brand new motorcycle is like flipping over itself and crashing. And I'm standing there thinking, I shouldn't have gotten anywhere close to this thing. What was I thinking? I should not have been toying with it. I shouldn't have been flirting with something that I couldn't even handle. There should have been a distance. I should have run from that thing rather than trying to toy with it. And so we subdue sin from a place of distance. We're not trying to see how close we can get to the line. We're running from the line. And then finally, we subdue sin, ultimately, finally, and most importantly, through the power of the cross. Through the power of the cross. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, sin is the sting that leads to death. But then he writes, but sin and death have been swallowed up in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. They've been swallowed up in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus has defeated sin and death. How, how is that? Well, in Colossians 2, Paul says it like this. The record of our sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross. And then Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, not only that, but when Jesus died on the cross and your sin that was nailed to that cross, God had victory over your sin and the powers and rulers and authorities that led you into that sin and are the masters of sin. That's the, the devil. And Paul writes, and so God had victory over them and turned them and made them into a spectacle. Who, who, who's the them? Well, it's devil and it's your sin. And Colossians 2 says he, he made a spectacle out of them through Jesus' death on the cross. What, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, in this day, the Romans, when they would defeat their enemy, they would lead them in this procession, their captives in a procession, to embarrass them, to make a spectacle of them, to show their dominance, to show their victory. They would lead their enemies in a procession to embarrass them and to prove that they had won the victory over them. And Paul writes that in the cross, when Jesus died on that cross, that God had victory over our sin and he had victory over the devil and he disarmed the devil and he disarmed anyone who would dare accuse you. How? What, what, what is he disarming? He's disarming and he's removing the ability of the devil or anyone else to accuse you of sin, to remind you of your sin. 
because he's already had victory over them on the cross. You see, when you broke the law, when you broke Roman law, there was a charge against you, it was written down. And when you had paid the fine for your sin, for your law breaking, when the fine, the sentence was paid in full, they would stamp something on the record of your sin. It was a word, to telestai. And that meant paid in full. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, you know the last three words he said were it is finished, it's the Greek word to telestai. It means paid in full. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, then God takes that stamp of the cross and he stamps the record of your sin, the charges against you. He stamps it to telestai, paid in full. It's finished, it's done. You see, from the outside looking at the cross, it looks like Jesus was a victim, but he wasn't. He was a victor. When he said it is finished, he, it was a victorious statement. It's done. The game is over. The fine for sin has been paid. It is completed. It's done. So the cross crushes your sin. And the cross crushes the curse of sin. And so... Our subduing of sin comes from the cross. The power, it comes from the cross. Not our self-effort, not in doing better or trying harder. We have victory over sin and death through the cross. In Micah chapter seven, the prophet Micah says, I've fallen, but I'm going to rise. There's one coming, there's a Messiah coming and, and he is going to rise. And by faith in him, I too will rise. Though I have fallen, I will rise. And then several verses later in Micah chapter seven, verse 19, speaking of this Messiah who's going to come, he says this, he, this Messiah will tread our sins underfoot and hurl them into the depths of the sea. There's one coming that's going to crush our sins under his feet and then hurl them into the depth of the sea. Do you know the deepest place in the ocean that we've discovered so far is in Challenger Deep? It's in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet below sea level. You could take Mount Everest 29,000 feet, turn it over upside down and still have 7,000 feet left to go. It's the deepest place on the ocean floor that we have discovered. And Micah says, that's where God hurled your sin into the depths of the sea. So Paul says, where, where sin, where, where death is your victory? You've been swallowed up in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we subdue sin from a place of victory. Knowing we've already got victory over our sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over the curse of sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we subdue sin by knowing we've already won. Sure, I may lose a battle today. I might lose a battle this week, but the war is over. It's done, it's finished. And so I subdue sin from a place of victory if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've given your life to Jesus, your sin is forgiven. You've been made right with God and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. 
But if you've never given your life to Jesus, then sin and death have victory over you. And you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Where you will pay the fine for your sin. You see, you have a choice. You can pay the fine for your sin and reject Jesus, or you can turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus and let him pay the fine for your sin. It's your choice. But if you would give your life to Jesus, your sin would be forgiven. You could be made right with God and you could know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. But listen to this, listen to me, listen. Don't leave this place ever thinking that you'll do better and try harder. The Bible is clear, good people don't go to heaven. Ephesians 2, verse eight and nine, salvation's not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. And so if you wanna give your life to Jesus today, I would invite you to jump on our app, the City Church Lubbock, go to our connect form, fill that out, check that box that says you're committing your life to Christ. And we would love to follow up with you and point you in the right direction from there. But whether it's your first time to give your life to Jesus, or maybe you've been living in sin as a Christian, and it's time to turn from your sin, here's my challenge for you. And it's the challenge for our whole series. When you sin, run to Jesus. Typically when we sin, we wanna run away from Jesus. We wanna run away from the people of God. But my hope is, is that through this series, you will see that yes, sin is a big deal to God and God hates your sin. But as a child of God, if you've given your life to Jesus, you have a heavenly father who loves you and want what's best for you and has arms wide open for you. That's what we talked about last week. And we, we serve a God who's hurled our sins into the depths of the sea and says he will remember them no more. And so when you sin, run to Jesus, run to the people of God, stop running away, run to Jesus. One of my favorite pictures in all of the scripture is when Peter, who had denied Christ three times and hadn't had a chance to talk to Jesus before Jesus dies, sees Jesus risen from the dead for the first time. They're, they're in this boat and the scripture says at the end of John that they're a hundred yards from shore. And one of the disciples sees Jesus on the shore and says, Peter, it's Jesus, that, that's him. He's risen from the dead, it, it's him. And I love this picture because the last time Peter saw Jesus, he had denied him three times. They had locked eyes and Peter, it says, broke down and wept. So this is the first time he sees Jesus. And you would think if you're Peter and you're ashamed, you would run away. But that's not what Peter does. A hundred yards away from shore, the <laughs> The scripture says that Peter jumped in the water and he ran to the shore. He ran to Jesus. He ran through the water to be with Jesus again. He didn't run from him, he ran to him. And when he got to Jesus, you would think that Jesus would come down on him. You would think that Jesus would berate him for his sin. But Jesus puts his arm around him. 
says, let's take a walk. And he asked Peter, he said, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then take care of my lambs. And then for a third time, and you can imagine being Peter and how broken this might make you feel, but Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter for a third time confesses his love for Jesus and Jesus says for a third time, then feed my sheep. Peter, you are always going to be a shepherd. My plans for you haven't changed. Feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. You're still going to be a shepherd. You run to me, you can experience, still experience my best for your life. You're still going to be a shepherd. And then Jesus says two words to Peter, follow me. Follow me. The call is still the same, Peter. From the very first day I met you, the very first invitation to follow me, you may have screwed up, but the call is still the same. Follow me. And the call is the same for you today. Whether it's for the first time, the 10th time, the 100th time, follow me. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the great news of the gospel that our sin and the curse of sin, which is death, have been swallowed up in victory. And so like Paul, we say, thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who through his death on the cross, nailed the record of our sin and completed it and finished it. And so God, I pray that regardless of where each person finds themselves that this morning, that they would hear you saying to them, follow me, follow me, run to me. Don't run away, run to me. And so God, I pray that that's what every one of us would do today. And right now in Jesus name, we would follow 